You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So, as many of you are probably aware, on Thursday it was the American holiday of Thanksgiving. There are some principles I do want to glean from Thanksgiving, and we're going to do a message on that this morning. So, if you don't know, there is a link between Thanksgiving and the biblical feast of tabernacles. Most people don't understand this connection, but this is basically where it came from. Most historians, scholars believe that the American pilgrims, the early pilgrims, copied the Feast of Tabernacles and had that as Thanksgiving. And the reason why is before they went to the New World, we know the the little phrase, 1492 Columbus sailed the oceans blue, something like that, isn't it? So that's how that's remembered. But 1492, actually, if you're Jewish, 1492 was the year that all the Jews were expelled from Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella, they were exiled from Spain. So the Sephardic Jews moved to Holland, which was at that time like a slightly safe area, free from religious persecution. And that was also where the pilgrims who were fleeing persecution in England moved to for a period before they sailed to the New World. So they lived right next to the Jewish community and they were a safe haven and they they got on well there at that time. And most likely historians believe that at that time they saw the Jewish community observing the Feast of Tabernacles and they observed it as a commemoration of their deliverance from Egypt and their provision that God provided for them in the wilderness and they used this when they got to the New World because you you may not know that the Puritans, the pilgrims, the early Puritans, they, they saw what was going on with America as like a replaying of Israel's story and this is why you'll hear them say America is the promised land. If you look at the early colonies in America, you'll notice most of their city names are all biblical names from the land of Israel. That's why there's so many names like that there. They refer to their journey across the seas on the Mayflower as the Exodus. And they both see it as an escape from persecution. They were escaping persecution just as the Jews were in Egypt at that time. So they saw this replaying. So it kind of fits naturally that when they were in the promised land and they had that first year of harvest, they would celebrate, they had to do something to celebrate, just like the Feast of Tabernacles when they celebrated the the crops, and that's basically where they believe that came from, and that's what's going on here. They are both very happy and joyous festivals, and there's obviously a focus on food, and the focus on food is actually biblical. That was the point of it. You you brought the first of your harvest, and and you celebrated and gave thanks to the Lord. There's a famous verse, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever, Psalm 136. In Hebrew, it begins with the term hodu, hodu l'adonai kitov ki le'olam chazdo, that hodu, give thanks in Hebrew, is also the word for turkey in Hebrew. So there's even like a connection there with the, with the language, hodu, give thanks. So I said to Sarah, like, there's a song that goes, hodu, hodu. You're actually just singing turkey, turkey, turkey. <laughs> give thanks to the Lord. It's a famous Hebrew worship song. I've ruined that for you now. But not a theological point that it was more just a, a, an interesting aside let's look at this theme a little bit more now as we look at the theme of thanksgiving though because if we're very honest with ourselves the reality of that command give thanks to the lord can often be more difficult to follow through with in a, in a world like we have today when there's things that weigh on us where there's there's you know bad stuff going on when we look around the world the reason to be scared reason to be anxious reason to be depressed as we go around however In the midst of all that, the Bible does seem to indicate that this is exactly the time when thanksgiving is appropriate. 
And this is the reason. The Bible doesn't deny the realities of a broken world. It doesn't deny the fact that we have these intense situations that are put on us. But interestingly, the Bible does seem to offer praise and thanksgiving as the antidote to those things. It does present it as an answer. Now, why is this? There's probably many reasons. One, one reason, I guess, that I, I was thinking of as I was studying this is that it keeps us from becoming too introspective. And this, this is the issue. Too self-focused, too focused on the world around us, on the situations, the trouble, the circumstances. And what it does do is it turns our hearts in gratitude towards God. Andrew Murray, the famous writer, he said, let us thank God heartily as often as we pray that we have his spirit in us to teach us to pray. Thanksgiving will draw our hearts out to God and keep us engaged with him. And it will take our attention away from ourselves and give the spirit room in our hearts. And I love that phrase, it will keep us engaged in him. Because I think this is too often the problem when we have so much going on in our lives and in our worlds that we just forget to engage with God. And then that just makes the problem worse. This is one of the reasons. So it reminds us that we are not the centre, he is. It reminds us that the things in the world will grow dim as we turn our focus towards the king. It makes us recount what he has done for us, makes us think about how much it cost him, it makes us think about how blessed we are to receive everything that he has given us. And these are things that will be true in our lives during times of joy and times of sorrow. And one of the reasons that we get in the Bible that commands us not to complain and grumble in the New Testament is not because there aren't things that are worth complaining and grumbling about. We all know there are. But because that when we do that, we inadvertently and subconsciously make those things the centre of our thought process. We focus on those things and they become all-consuming. And what comes out of us when we have that in our heads is usually going to be playing into that, that side of our nature. What we really need in times of brokenness in the world is to bring the light and the presence of Christ into that situation. One famous theologian said, if you're wearing a spirit of heaviness, try putting on a garment of praise. And this, I believe, really was the reality of how we see people like Paul and Silas singing praises and hymns to God after they'd been arrested, beaten, falsely accused, assaulted and thrown into the depths of a dark Roman prison. In earthly terms, that was wrong, unjust, it was painful, it was confusing, and it was utterly hopeless because most people who went into a centre of a prison, a Roman prison, came out either in a box or not in a good situation. That was, they were waiting execution, basically. It was hopeless. However, if you put God into that situation, it suddenly changes. Yes, it's still painful, it's still confusing, they were still in pain and everything was hurting, but when you enter God into that situation, it suddenly becomes a situation that ultimately is still under his control. Those people in there still have the promises of God towards them that cannot be broken. There is one thing, basically, that they can know, that this is being used for God's purpose. It's one where he will use it for his glory. And we know that he did in that situation. Very shortly, that jailer was led to the Lord. It was one where, even in the midst of darkness and evil, he used his servants to testify to the world about the light of the gospel. And that was, again, something that all those things cannot take away. Remember the story of Jonah. He was told to go and preach to the Assyrians, those wicked Assyrians who were just renowned in the ancient world for their cruelty. And he said, no, I'm not doing it. And he ran away. And he's on the ship and he gets thrown overboard. I mean, that's about as bleak as it could pretty, pretty much get, thrown overboard by your shipmates. He's swallowed by the beast in the sea. And what does he pray? Look at Jonah 2 verse 9. He says this, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. 
he considered thanksgiving a sacrifice. A sacrifice is an offering that he would bring. Tozer said that gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God. It is one that the poorest of us can make and be not poorer for it, but richer having made it. Now we know that Jonah here was not necessarily thanking God for the circumstance. It was a result of his disobedience that he was there. And he begins his prayer in verse 2 by crying out, I called out in my distress to the Lord. He acknowledged the distressing circumstances that he was in, but his thanksgiving was based upon the character and the actions of God in salvation history. And it was that to which thanksgiving turned his heart, his thoughts and his mind, even in the midst of the darkness he was in. So this is what I want to look at. Thanksgiving should focus our hearts upon God. Now let's turn to 1 Chronicles 16 and we'll look at this concept a little more from a passage that really gets into this deep. The context here is that King David is now the king. Saul is gone. He wants the Ark of the Covenant to come back to Jerusalem. He has constructed a tabernacle, a tent dwelling for him. Remember, the Ark was synonymous with the presence of God at this time. David's desire to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem was his desire to bring the presence of God back into the nations. The Ark had previously been captured years before by the Philistines, and it had been left to rot in an out a little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem in a Philistine town. He tried once, David, to bring it back. He didn't do it properly. He didn't listen to the word of God. He tried to transport that how he thought was best, and Uzziah, who reached out to, to steady the Ark, was struck dead. He then learned that he had to follow the word of God, be obedient and worship at the same time. And this, he has this journey where he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. It is an, a time, if you read the narrative, that is accompanied by praise, worship, singing, dancing, joy, thanksgiving, and yes, feasting too. Verse 1 says, They brought the ark of God, placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord, and he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a raisin cake. Now, the portion of meat would have come from the sacrifices. You see there what's kind of going on here. Meat, sweets, and loaf of bread, that was considered a pretty good meal in the, in the ancient Near East. And this was all coming from this concept of bringing the Lord back to Jerusalem. It says in verse 4, he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. He says the Levites as ministers. The word for minister is a servant. The ministers were there to serve. The worship was part of their service to God. It was a celebration of the God of Israel to thank him, to show gratitude towards him. David then goes on in verses 5, 6, and 7. He selected a musical choir from among the Levites who could do this. The ark, remember, was the presence of God. The joy of receiving blessings from the Lord is illustrated with this concept of the food and the sacrifices being distributed by King David. Now, there's deep typology in this. Remember, as we've studied in Revelation 21 and 22, the ark, the Holy of Holies, that was the throne room of God. It was a replica of the throne room of God. And you have blessings being distributed now by the king, King David, accompanied by worship. Whenever we saw the throne room of God, we saw worship in heaven, didn't we? Blessings come out from not from David, but one who is greater than King David, the ultimate descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who distributes his blessings to the earth. And this is the idea of the, the typology of what's going on here. It is a scene of blessing and joy, worship and thanksgiving. And I believe it is actually held out to us here as the antidote to a heavy heart, to a dark world, to render a pattern in our life to follow. 
the desire to dwell with God, the joy of his presence, the blessings received from him, the celebration of his deeds, thanksgiving and praise. Ultimately, all of those things are worship. That is what really is the foundation of worship. It is the key. And I think the issue is, if we are in this world, you're watching too much news or your heart is being weighed down by the things that you see going on around you and you can't get out of that, this is probably the answer. There's no consistent worship in your life. And worship is not just whatever we make it to be. This is the error we fall into so much. Worship is a pattern. Most of the Old Testament is God describing his particular patterns for how he wants us to, to worship, approach, and also receive and enjoy everything that he has to give us. And David, we see doing this here. He organises the worship of Israel around the Ark of God, around the throne of God. It is the very centre of everything that that nation should have been focusing upon. And the history of the Bible in the Old Testament is that whenever that was not their focus, when the Ark was sitting over in Kiriath-Jerim and it was rotting away, when all these things were happening, we see the nation went into apostasy. Every time the ark was not the focus, they went into apostasy. They went after the delights of the other nations. They made it with other nations. They did not seek their security and refuge in the Lord. And instead of worship and praise, they had judgment coming their way. Verse 7. Then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. It's what it says, David, as the sweet psalmist of Israel, he prepares a psalm of thanksgiving. And it's the most wonderful psalm that we have here. It's actually sort of three different psalms put together that you'll find in the book of Psalms. But here we see it first delivered in this format. And I, want, I love this psalm of thanksgiving. It teaches us step by step what it is we should give thanks for. Because like I said, giving thanks can sometimes be quite hard. You might look around your immediate life and you might think... <laughs> things are pretty bleak right now. There's not much I actually feel like giving thanks for. And I think that is a situation that is replicated by millions of people around the world. The answer is in this psalm. In those situations, I want you to focus on what the thanksgiving is for this psalm. It's a great lesson for us today. So let's read verses 8 to 12. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. And in those four verses is really the essence of worship. The first one he says is to give thanks. And this is what we're talking about mainly this morning, giving thanks. This is acknowledging God's provision and his goodness. And it stirs our heart to give thanks to God. It's basically an expression of gratitude to God. It's a focus on what he has done rather than on immediate situations. It's giving thanks basically in response to God's grace. The word for give thanks in the Old Testament is one of those words that, that has many different expressed words that actually are translated in the same way. One of them is that you hold up your hands. It's an expression of worship. You lift up your hands. In the New Testament, the word comes from the root word for grace. And this is why they say giving thanks is an expression of his grace. Now, what is the problem if you're not rooted in the grace of God? If you haven't fully actually studied and understood what the grace of God has given to you, you will have little to give thanks for. And the world will press in on you and you'll focus on the world rather than the grace of God. We need to give thanks. We need to call upon his name, it says next. And this is, again, a reminder. The focus of everything. Don't go elsewhere. Don't go to other gods in the context of the Old Testament here is what it's talking about. For us, it may be other solutions. 
We must know that God is the one that we call upon, the one that we need, the one we go to, go to him and him alone. This is an expression of our personal relationship with him and it expresses his name, everything that is represented by that. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is his name, the name above all names. For us, it recalls his character, his attributes, and it reminds us of the privileged fact that God actually revealed his personal name to his people. And that in itself is a reason for giving thanks. So we give thanks, we call upon his name, we make known his deeds, it says. What does this simply mean? We speak about what God has done in history. And again, here's another point. And I would say what this simply means, if you want to translate it, yes, it's talking about personally in your own life, but our life is short compared to the whole history of the narrative that we have in the Bible. It means read your Bible, see what God has done in history to secure your salvation. See what his love has motivated him to do for you. Learn about his great acts, his awesome deeds, his power, his might, his wisdom, and then proclaim them to people. And what that does is it focuses your heart and your mind and your words and thus your actions on speaking of the glories of God. And then the following one that comes from that, give thanks, call upon his name, make known his deeds, will result in what? Sing to him. These naturally follow from one another. And we can ask ourselves at this moment, really, what is the song in our heart? What comes out? Is it ugly or beautiful? What's the focus of these things? You see, the song that we're talking about, I believe, is supernaturally placed in us from the Lord. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns, hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God that's the key there singing with thankfulness in your heart to God that's what we're looking at here the best possible thing you can do in tough times is to fill your heart with the word of God Amen. and that is not a Christian cliche that is the anti that is the very thing God says that will make your heart sing as you focus upon him it may be the very last thing that you feel like doing in those times but remember just as we read here David appointed the Levites to sing around the throne of God to focus the nation's attention on the throne, on the ark at that time. A greater than David, a king greater than David, the king, the descendant of David, has appointed you to do exactly the same thing. To worship and sing and study his words, to call on his name, to give thanks, to make known his deeds. And then what's the next thing? It says we glory in his name. You see, we glory in many things on this earth. Most of them, some of them not bad, not good. Many of them bad. Sometimes our focus is on success, wealth, achievements, strength of our militaries, all the different things that the world glories in. But the believer should above all glory in the name. That means the character and the nature of God. And when we glory in him, we should boast about him. He is the incomparable God. He is the king above all kings, the name above all names. If we are to boast in anything, it should be that we know him. And then it says we seek him. It's the last one. We seek him. What does this mean? It means that our life is directed in pursuit of him, quite simply. Our life is directed in pursuit of him. King David put this beautifully elsewhere in Psalm 27, verse 4. He said it like this. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. One thing. What I love about this verse, it says one thing. The beautiful simplicity of the devotional life. You see, life can be very complicated, can't it? Life can be extremely messy. Often we make it more complicated than it needs to be. There are pressures and concerns coming at us from every angle. But the devotional life, ultimately, is very simple. One thing. The man after God's own heart. It was one thing that he desired. That was what it was. Instead of the complicated life, we see it stripped down here to the simplicity. All of this man's longings reduced to one statement. The whole force of his being here concentrated upon a single aim... I have desired, and this is what he will seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, more often, with us, our desires are not singular, are they? We have many desires. The world is constantly throwing new desires, new things that we want to experience at us, and we seek after them. But we need to be careful, you see. Look at the close connection that it puts here in the text. That which you desire will be that which you seek. And that which you seek will be that which you do basically. You will pursue after it. And this is where it can be a warning for us here, but this could also be a blessing for us if you're actually seeking the right thing. Now, back in the Chronicles text, it then says, let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. And this is an interesting thing. Such a directed life, one that is simplified to that one thing, that one thing that he asked to seek the Lord, will produce a gladness of heart. The word there has connotations of richness, fullness, and satisfaction in life. And we see this as a need for people today, to be satisfied with life. It comes from the simplicity of the devotional life. One thing I have asked, that I may see the beauty of the Lord. It says, when it says, David, when, in 1 Chronicles, when he says, seek your face, that's very similar to the expression that you find in the psalm there, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Seeking his face was that expression of intimacy. The one thing that he wants is that desire to be intimate with God, to be close enough to behold the beauty of the Lord, to have that communion with God as he reveals himself to us, his sheer, indescribable, utterly incomprehensible beauty. We've studied this in the end of Revelation. All of his attributes, his character, his plans, his love, his glorious, his strength, his wisdom that he used to create this world, the radiance, it's totally and absolutely incomparable by anything in the created world. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? That is something that we should be pursuing. We are actually commanded to pursue that. And it is available to us. This is the greatest desire we should have in life. And if it's not, and let's be honest with ourselves, often it's not, is it, throughout the day, throughout the weeks, when other concerns press in on us. What do we do in that situation? The Lord knows our hearts. I believe we do exactly what David did. One thing I've asked. Ask for that. If you don't really know what I mean when I say the beauty of the Lord... That's okay. Ask for it, and the Lord will reveal it to you. And follow these processes for worshipping him, and you will have your heart will sing with gladness. Let's move on. Verse 13. O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham his oath to Isaac, he also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. So David now changes paces, he does something else in this psalm, but he does it for a purpose. He recounts God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel, his people at this time. 
You see, Israel was blessed to have the Lord in a personal way that the other nations at this time did not have. They were the covenant people of God. This alone was given as reason for them to be thankful and praise the Lord. God's faithfulness to his people is an expression of the outworking of this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. We call it his covenantal love. In fact, one of the words for loving kindness in the Old Testament is actually the word that means his covenantal love. It's a love that is loyal and faithful to the end, a love that will not betray, a love that cannot be broken, that will not disappoint. This is what everything that is uh, given to us in that word. And it was said to be an everlasting covenant. In the covenant of Abraham, we are promised a land the, the Israelites were promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. The land is then expanded on in another covenant. The seed is then expanded upon in another covenant. The blessing is then expanded upon in another covenant. We call that the new covenant. And by the grace of God, we are grafted in to share in those spiritual blessings of that new covenant, salvation aspect of it. That was given to the whole world through the seed. You see how all of these things are connected in world history. This itself is another reason to give thanks to the Lord. Verse 19, when they were only a few in number, very few, and strangers in it, they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sake, saying, do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Here he speaks of his divine protection of Israel. Even during times of divine discipline, when Israel was not following the Lord, they still survived, and they survived ultimately because of this covenant. This is why Israel is not just a footnote in history, as many other ancient Near Eastern communities were. As they get taken over and taken into exile and judgment, they assimilate and they disappear to the face of history. That never happened to Israel, ultimately because of this covenant. Verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. You see how much this psalm of thanksgiving is focused upon the Lord. Everything about the Lord comes out in this psalm. This is again a recognition of his faithfulness. And again, we have this invitation now for the, the command, basically, to sing. This stuff should stir our heart. You should feel it lifting your spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, it will resonate with you at these things to the point that he says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Look at the verse 23. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Good tidings there might say good news in your Bibles. That's the idea here. And here is actually where we have, this is the gospel, the good news of salvation here, talked about in that way in the Old Testament. Most people assume good news is something that we see or read about in the New Testament. No. And this is a thing that we need to remind ourselves of. Sometimes, particularly if you've been a Christian a while, if you've been in church a while, if you've been around religious things for a while, this sort of kind of bubble that often we're guilty of living in, it's easy to, to not think about salvation as the blessing that it is. It's easy to actually become common when we think about salvation, and this should not be. And this, again, goes back to those first things. Sometimes we need to just go back, look at what we were, where we come, where we're going, and see how the gospel has changed that for us. Look at what it cost Christ. Look at how he ordered history for that one appointed day where he would come die for the sins of the world, and then he would get it, the message out to the world. All of these things we need to remind ourselves of as we just dwell on the simple basics of Christianity, the gospel, salvation by faith. These things will begin to stir our hearts 
for thanksgiving. And notice it says, from day to day, we should be doing this. From day to day. The thought of our salvation should be a daily thing. The fact that we are blessed, that we are saved, should be a daily thought in our minds. And this is another reason we can give thanks in troubled times. 24, it says, tell of his glory among the nations. Now the people of God are told to tell of this glorious God to the nations. You see, the privilege to them of knowing such a glorious God like they did meant that they had a responsibility to proclaim it to everyone else who did not know. And it was, a great, it was too great a thing, basically, to keep to themselves. That's the idea here. If you're in possession of such knowledge, such a wonderful, you know the God of the universe, you should not keep it to yourself. Verse 25, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This is actually found quite a few times, if you notice this little phrase in the Bible, particularly through the Psalms. His being, it's speaking of God's essence here, is great, maximally great, above all other things. And therefore, it's right to praise him for that greatness. It's a greatness without any flaws, a greatness that doesn't lean towards being dictatorial, to abusing power. It's a greatness that is morally pure in its full essence, and there is nothing greater. Psalm 145, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That's a beautiful way of expressing it. His greatness is unsearchable. That means it's inexhaustible. You are never able to find its end. The pursuit, this pursuit we've been talking about, seeking God, it's one that you will never come to the end of because his greatness far exceeds anything and it is never ending and you will be searching and learning, discovering more of the greatness of God throughout eternity. And we can't really conceive a greatness like that, but that is the Lord and that in itself is another reason to give thanks and to give praise. It says he is also to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his place. Now because of these, we should also have a healthy fear and reverence for this awesome God. A being like this demands that sort of from us. Every other false God that it mentions here is a merely a pretender. And the point is, every other false God, if you think about it, is actually an idol made by man's hands. It's either fashioned by a man or it's thought of by a man. Yet the one we're talking about is the one who actually created those hands. So this is something, again, that just proves the greatness of God. And then it goes on. In fact, it actually says he made the heavens. He made the entire realm, the entire cosmos for these people to make these idols in that he allows. But he is greater. Strength and joy, splendor and majesty are before him. Verse 28, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, some of your Bibles might say give thanks. That's a weak translation of what the word means. It's more the idea here is credit God. That's why it says ascribe. Credit God with these things. There's two sections, really, that it's talking about here actually provide the backdrop for Paul's theology in Romans chapter 1, if you pick up on this. Ascribing to the Lord glory and strength and not worshipping idols made with man's hand is exactly the theme that Paul picks up on when he's talking about the, the rejection of God and the impact of sin that it's had on the world. He says they professed to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. This is that great God we're talking about, his glory that we're told to give thanks for because he is great. And they exchanged it for the form of a corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals. Basically, it's saying they exchanged it for their own idols and their own created things that they then worshipped. And this is the effect of sin on the world. It removes the glory from God and places it on other things. 
And that is basically ultimately what sin does. And this is why the call for the believer is to put the ark back in the centre of your life. That is what it needs to be. And then from the ark, you have the people worshipping it. From that, you have giving thanks, you have calling upon his name, you have singing and you have remembering and all these things that we've talked about. This is the pattern of worship. And it inoculates us against those other things in the world. Ascribe, credit, acknowledge the truth of what it's saying here. And the truth here expressed is basically that glory and strength and honour are the Lord's. And because of these things, worship is due his name. No one else has a right to demand worship. No one else does, because no one else is worthy of that sort of worship. And now if you go through history, anyone who demands worship ends up being a demigod or a despot, or it, it ends very badly. Only God can do that in all its fullness and purity. And ultimately, the destiny and history of all nations is for them to worship the Lord. That is where history is moving, and it's best to make sure that we get that done now. Verse 30, tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. You see, now he emphasises that all creation is in fact testimony to the reality of the greatness of God. He established the world, therefore rejoice. He is the Lord of the earth as its creator and he reigns, therefore rejoice and give thanks. Even the earth, the trees and the sea, it says poetically here, will sing for joy. And notice, it's beautiful poetic language, but the progression is very clear. From the ark, from the nation, from Israel, to the other nations, to the created cosmos, even the earth, the birds and the seas and everything else will be singing praise to God one day. That's the idea here. It's an ever-expanding chorus of praise. And ultimately, then it says he is coming to judge the earth. Now, for the believer, the reality that the king is once again coming is another reason for thanksgiving and praise because it means that the troubles of this world will one day come to an end, and that's the point about it. That's why we can give thanks that he's coming to judge because in judging, he, does, he fixes. In judging, he prepares us for the restoration, for the kingdom, and all things where, where the old world is gone, the things that trouble us now will be no more. And we can give thanks for that. And also, we give thanks for the fact that because of the salvation that he was singing about earlier, that judgment is not for us. Amen. Okay, These are all reasons that we can give thanks and we can give praise for him. And then look at how he concludes in verse 34. And I like this. This is interesting. In light of everything that we've seen, notice it's all about God. Not once does he talk about the troubles that the Israelites were in. He doesn't deny them. There's some huge amounts in the Bible. Like Jonah, he knows that these are distressing circumstances, but it's the focus of their life that we look at here. And look how he ends. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And then say, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. So here we see that, that, that phrase that we have in Psalm 136. Do you remember Psalm 136? 26 times you have this phrase mentioned, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then it will say another thing and it will say that verse again. It does it 26 times. It's making the point very forcefully, this is the centerpiece of our thanksgiving. This one verse here, if you want to look, strip it down, like we said, to the simplest thing, the two elements presented as the most important thing in our spiritual lives, above all things, all physical blessings, all good things, all bad things, anything else, is this. 
Give thanks to the Lord because he is good, supremely good. In his truest and purest sense, above all else, there's never any danger of him doing wrong, of him turning bad. He is good. And this goodness is expressed in his loving kindness, and his loving kindness will last forever. Those two things we can always give thanks for, and it will have that same effect. It'll turn our heart towards God, it'll focus us on the ark, on the throne room of God, and it will fill our heart as we remember, recount as we are grateful, and we give thanks. And before you know it, you're focused purely on the ark, just like the Israelites were told to. Okay? They had enemy nations around them on every border. We still do today in many ways. But they don't focus on the ark today. That's the problem. We need to pray for that. But the point is, for our spiritual lives, we can still focus here, in amongst everything that's going on, on this fact. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. If you take nothing else from this, remember that verse. You can give thanks for that. And then look in verse 35. Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us, deliver us from the nations. He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And then his, his salvation, his protection, and his deliverance. His salvation, his protection, and his deliverance. They are all things that apply to us today. Thus, we give thanks to his holy name. We glory in his praise. And it says from everlasting to everlasting. In Hebrew, that's the strongest expression to indicate eternality. There's no stronger way that Hebrew can express that this is the state of affairs forever, because God is forever. These things will remain true to God. And if we are God's children, they remain true to us in that sense, personal way too. And then he ends by saying, then all the people said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.